The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hello, woman, person. You all right? I thought last night during the ceremony that you were pleased. Well, yeah, last night I was. Had some mulled wine. Pretty girl gave me a hat made out of a tree. Nobody said I was signing up to having a hold. Are you going to kill me? What? What kind of crappy planet is that? Kill you. In the maiden's home, I heard talk of men who weren't pleased with their brother. Well, I ain't them. And don't you ever stand for that sort of thing. Someone ever tries to kill you, you try to kill him right back. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 8th, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. Not right wing. That's right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And welcome to our first show in 2009. And uh, it's been about what three weeks now since I was last on the air. A lot of a sh- lot of topics have crossed our path in, uh, between the last and last broadcast and this one today. We all made it into 2000 or 2009. It's almost hard to believe that it is 2009. By the way, 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in the topics today. And I'm talking about two basic themes today. Basically, the economy a bit and, of course, what is going on over in Gaza, uh, which I will deal with shortly. But first, I wanted to touch upon economic issue. I think I'll start the show and end the show a bit on the economic issue and we'll fill in the middle with what's going on in Gaza. You know, we've been watching, hearing all this stuff about everybody wanting to bail everybody out and at the end of the month I guess we're going to see the money start flowing with uh, Barack Obama being inaugurated and Parliament coming back, theoretically. Um, We're going to see the money taps open and that's when I think we're going to start feeling some pain deal with that a little bit later at the end of the show, but first there's a sort of an interesting thing that happened. Of course, you probably all know about it, and I I think if ever there was a case for Pragmatism Illustrated, the revealed Ponzi scheme of Bernard Madoff has got to be it. You know, I was watching a Bank of Montreal asset manager speaking on CBC News just before Christmas, and and his amazement at the Madoff scandal was best expressed by his comment, which, which he also attributed to many other investors. You know, he's something like, quote, he seemed to have a system that worked. And they were referring to Madoff, of course. And, uh, well, yeah, they gave him money. He gave him more money back, and that was all they cared about, right? So it worked. And, uh, but unfortunately, it was a Ponzi scheme based on ever-increasing sales and not on productivity and real investments. And that's the classic pyramid scheme. Now, let's stop and think about this for a minute. It's now 2009, right? The Madoff scandal made it to the front pages of the World Newspaper in 2008, ostensibly on December 11th when the, re, you know, the report was actually released. But it made it to those responsible for regulating fraud and misrepresentation long before that. In fact, 
The title of a 17-page statement set in 1995 to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission by independent investigator Harry Markopoulos about Mr. Madoff's success read, quote, the world's largest hedge fund is a fraud, end quote. And as you see all the newspaper articles, and you can, you can get into the details, get lost in them, but uh, apparently irregularities had been spotted in this situation for, like, decades. Now, uh, you know, literally over $50 billion of investors' money vanished into thin air. Though, of course, that's not what really happened to it. And that's where I thought this whole thing got a little funny. London Free Press headline of December 27 about the Madoff Pyramid Scheme asks the question, where did all the money go? And then talks about how, quote, several theories are being discussed among financial experts and at Wall Street water coolers, Palm Beach country clubs and offices of city accounting professors. Among the theories, Madoff lost a bundle in bad investments, paid some of the money out to investors, stashed cash in foreign banks, and spent some on his lavish lifestyle. He has plenty of houses and yachts, but not certainly enough to account for all his money, said Ashwath Demordian, a professor of finance at New York University. It is really tough to, to lose 100%, end quote. Now, it amazes me, you know, quite frankly, that so many experts actually have to debate the obvious because it is obvious where the money went. And by the way, it went to all those places, they said, to some degree. But most of it, you know, anyone who understands how a Ponzi slash pyramid scheme works knows exactly where the money went. It went to the people who got out of the pyramid at the top, while those at the bottom were left holding the bag. That's how all pyramid schemes work. If you get in early... And if sales keep moving, which means, you know, getting other people to put their money into your pyramid scheme, and if you get out in time, uh, you know, and this latter part's the most important, then you're a winner. And that, of course, is where all the money went. It went to the winners, quote. So whose money was it? Well, it was the losers, the guys who got in late. The money did not disappear into nowhere. The wealth was merely transferred from some people to other people, and that's where the money went. Robbing Peter to pay Paul until you run out of Peters. How many times do we talk about that? Now, you know, have you ever gotten one of, one of those letters that goes something like this? Uh, you know, it could be an email, too, whatever. Uh, send ten copies of this letter to your friends, and have each of them send ten copies of that letter to their friends, etc. And, of course, if you do not, your mother will die a horrible death, or your firstborn will be sacrificed to the gods of Olympus or some such thing. Bottom line being, it's very unlucky not to keep the chain going. And in all likelihood on many of them, depending, I've seen different types, your name might appear on a list of many others, and it's, you know, your duty to add another ten, ten names, or three or five or whatever, to that list. Now, if you did receive such a letter, email or whatever, and you played along and you complied, then you've already participated in a pyramid scheme, perhaps a relatively harmless one, but a fraudulent illusion nonetheless. You know, now this is the key to successful pyramid operations. If you're, you know, if you want to be successful at this, uh, you've got to be the first person on the top of the pyramid. Start your own. If somebody gives you a letter or <laughs> says, join my pyramid scheme, why bother signing up in that? If you're going to do that, start at the top. Be the Madoff of your own pyramid, right? Why, why join in at the bottom? Because, you know, the first person to write the letter, you know, will, will send it out to their friends, always implying, of course, that uh, they got that letter from someone else. But then you can guarantee you're at the top of the pyramid, and you win before the pyramid even gets off the ground. But if you get a letter from someone else, you have no way of knowing where you are in that pyramid, 
relative to all the rest of the people. And uh, you could be near the top, you could be in the middle, or you could be at the bottom. Now, you know, instead of just sending cryptic messages or something like that with one of these uh, pyramid letters, chain letters, suppose your pyramid scheme required each participant to toss in 25 cents or a dollar or five dollars or a hundred dollars or let's say a hundred million dollars or so. <laughs> well, welcome to the world of international finance and deficit financing. You know, you know, there's something psychologically alluring about pyramid schemes. I saw this when I was in my 20s and 30s. You know, they look like an effortless way to make a lot of money, even when it's openly known and acknowledged that you're participating in a pyramid scheme. I, I remember at least on three or four occasions um, during my 20s and 30s, having been encouraged by friends and acquaintances to participate in, you know, and they actually used the word, <laughs> a pyramid scheme. Okay, it's kind of like if we had known what it was all about, it's kind of like going up to your friends and saying, hey, you want to join me in ripping off your friends and acquaintances? And yet, despite this subconscious acknowledgement, they still jumped into the fire and a lot of them got burned, all on the assumption that the risk of getting caught in the pyramid was less than the potential for profits if you happen to be one of the lucky ones to get out near the top. And, uh, you know, I think that's the way a lot of people just think and right all the way to the top of the Madoff lists. I think what makes uh, the Madoff scandal particularly symbolic in these so-called times of economic crisis is that virtually all government programs operate on the exact same principle. Whether you're talking about Canada pension, health care insurance plans, all of these, you know, security plans, all, all work on robbing Peter to pay Paul, and they were started as such. Uh, the politicians that started them said, no, we're not investing your money in an account and, and letting interest accumulate and making sure you have a, a, a health care account. No, we're going to just rob future taxpayers. We're counting on the fact that there will be more of them in the future than there were when you signed up, and that's how your health care system supposed to run. And we're already seeing the results of that pyramid scheme in the health care system. So, you know, when you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, you have to work hard to keep the number of Peters in your pyramid web always greater than the number of Pauls. Because all you're doing is transferring the wealth from one group to another. No investments made, no savings accumulated, no security other than the promise that you're going to force somebody else to pay. And uh, we'll talk more about the economy near the end of the show, and we'll talk about, uh, uh, you know, the bailouts that uh, they're, they're planning with the car industry and all that stuff. And I want to introduce you to an economist who has something quite different to say on it. But coming up next, the conflict in Gaza has once again turn the world's attention to the seemingly unresolvable situation in the Middle East. But, so I, th I thought to start it off, I'm going to give you a perspective on that issue that I do not share particularly. And I heard this expressed by John Stewart on his show this past Monday night, a show which I like, and I, you know, I think he was funny, but sometimes being funny isn't always that funny. And thankfully he interviews David Gregory of Meet the Press after his little rant, who at least eventually shed some light on the subject, uh, a little to the disappointment of John, I noticed. I don't know if it'll come across in the audio. But here's how that went, and when we return, we're going to take a look at a local controversy regarding Gaza under a philosophical microscope. So here is uh, from the John Stewart Show of Monday night, and we'll be back in a minute. Now, obviously, uh, if my memory serves me, uh, I believe that the truce between Hamas and Israel only expired about two weeks ago. It's not like Hamas lobbing missiles is an unusual or new occurrence. Why does Israel feel they have to react so strongly right now? They did it now because they wanted to 
clean the slate before the new administration came in. Despite Obama's you know, statements about his support for Israel, he's still an unknown entity to them. And they knew that they had unrelenting support from the Bush administration. I get it. Israel's they're not sure that the new administration is going to allow them carte blanche in the bombing department. So they're getting it in now before the January 20th hope and change deadline. <laughs> Time's running out. It's like a civilian carnage Toyota-thon. <laughs> Hamas's continued insistence on firing rockets into Israel and Israel's continued insistence on the soul-crushing segmentation and blockading of Gaza is a very complex situation. Obviously, both sides of the complex situation are vigorously championed by American politicians. I uh, uh, understand Israel's desire to protect itself. I think what the Israelis are doing is very important. Israel has no choice but to take military action. The Israelis are doing the only thing they can possibly do to defend their population. The missile firings into Israel, I think, brought a proper response from, uh, um, from the Israelis. See? It's the Mobius strip of issues. There's only one side. <laughs> and as always, even the analogies flow one way. All Americans know what we would be doing if rockets were landing in San Diego from Tijuana. Yeah! <laughs> We'd open them up and pull out the tequila and hookers. <laughs> Am I right, people? It's a freaking Tijuana rocket. You can't go to spring break. They'll just fire it to you. It's inconceivable to me that if missiles were coming out of Cuba into South Florida that we wouldn't respond. If this were going on in the United States from Vancouver, Canada into Seattle, would we react? Of course we do. First of all, <laughs> I don't believe Canada has missiles with the range to hit the United States. anyone this always surprises me why can't any American politician criticize Israel in any way for, for their behavior I'm watching these shows and there's not one person going Jesus kind of complex yeah Hamas is a bad actor they shouldn't be throwing missiles but right. gosh you know uh, the treatment of the Palestinian people maybe for the past uh, 50 years not so nice either but you never you never no, hear I, that I think that's it. a fair point I don't think that uh, <laughs> I think that oh, these guys are... <laughs> It just, it, it seems like it's a more complicated situation right. than is portrayed. Well, but it, it's, it's complicated in terms of the whole situation remains complicated. Right. In this particular instance, there's very little love for Hamas. Not in America, not in Arab capitals. Uh, Abu Mazen, who leads Fatah on the West Bank, has criticized Hamas. Uh, there isn't a lot of admiration for Hamas's tactics or even their strategic vision mm -hmm. uh, throughout the Middle East and certainly in America. So in this case, when you've had Hamas uh, uh, attacking Israel with missiles for some time, it doesn't diminish the larger right. issue but involved. that's across the board. You, you rarely see, I mean, this is the first incident in a cycle of well, all these things, yeah. but you almost never hear anybody say, hey man, you know, the settlements or any that kind of stuff. Nobody, is that, is that really the third rail now of American politics? Like I don't, Social no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I do think that an Obama administration will put more pressure on the Israeli government than so, the Bush well, administration. He's Look. Muslim. So sure, he's going to go in there <laughs> no, but let me tell you and say, uh, right. let my people go to some yeah, extent. Yeah. No, but, but I, I'm just, I, I'm, I, I'm touching you. I don't know if that was okay. But I, uh, look, you are the tallest Jew I have ever met. <laughs> I want you to know that. I know. If I'm going to... I'm not that much taller if, than you. Please, okay, don't... I mean, 
You're like the LeBron James of Jews. You are so the center of our Maccabea team. All right, go ahead. Uh, you know, settlement activity uh, under the Bush administration, do you know from 2000 to 2007, settlement activity increased the population 45% in Israel. That mm -hmm. doesn't say anything about illegal outposts. So there's no question this was not an area where the Bush administration was pressuring the Israelis. Well, uh, and, and to, to Bush's mind, he was saying before I leave, there will be a, a peace agreement uh, between right. them. He said that was one of the things he wanted to I do. I think a lot of people thought that that was is quite there, optimistic. Is there anything... <laughs> Anything else in this country that you believe he hasn't f***ed up that he could still do? <laughs> he's, got, he's got two weeks. It's like a bad movie trailer. It sure is. And unfortunately, that bad movie trailer is alive and well in Gaza today. Welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, 519-661-3600, the number to call if you've got anything to say about this issue. And, of course, you can email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. I know I, say, I don't say these things often enough. But, you know, I remember Ayn Rand wrote that wars are the second greatest evil that human societies can perpetrate. The first is dictatorship, the enslavement of their own citizens, which is the cause of the second of wars. Now, you know... That alone says a lot about what's going on in the Mideast, is that you've got a lot of dictators running countries in the Mideast. They are incapable of peace, and until more of us realize that, uh, it isn't going to change. You cannot have dictatorships be peaceful. They can be benign to a certain point because they're kept in line by other powers and other influences and competing powers, but generally, as soon as there's an imbalance in that power, the spark is lit. Now, I know there's been a lot of protests in the city, both, uh, you know, for Palestine, and I understand tonight at the Jewish Community Center, um, they're going to be having another uh, rally for, for, of course, the uh, Israeli side. Uh, they say in their press release that this year alone, the men and women and children of southern Israel have endured nearly 3,000 missile strikes launched by Hamas terrorists. I mean, that's just a stunning figure. I, I can't believe that a country will not have taken a strike back after maybe the first missile. But no, you, know, you, you, you ever sit down and just try to count to 3,000? Just do it nice and slow and see how many that actually is. But, uh, of course, Israel took action. A, a, uh, a ceasefire ended on the 19th. Uh, obviously, Hamas was not paying attention. They got 3,000 rockets in there. And uh, Israel basically said right off the top, it's going to be a long weeks of action right to the end, and this will continue until the airstrikes from Gaza stop going into Israel. And um, it's amazing. I heard, uh, I heard uh, announcers and radio commentators after hearing that saying, well, what do you think needs to happen to make this end? <laughs> it's obvious. Stop sending the rockets. So, of course, locally we had a bit of a controversy. And... Uh, it was covered both in the London Free Press and I heard on CJBK radio, I think this was earlier this week, from Dr. Munir Al-Qasem, who uh, spoke on behalf of the, um, the Palestinian community, I guess, in this case, raised half a million dollars on the Sunday and got caught with some rather uh, what were considered misinterpreted comments. And uh, this was on the front page of the paper. I really didn't see anything that excitable about the things that he was, uh, you know, said that were so incendiary. I didn't think, I understood when he, when he said it that it was meant in the, in the way that he said it was. However, it was the other things that he was saying. 
that people weren't paying attention to. They aren't reading between the lines here and hearing what is actually being argued here. So what I did was I took his comments. I have a transcript of them in front of me here. And I find that, uh, you know, this is uh, another thing, too. I've got to mention, as soon as I heard him make these comments, and I kid you not, three minutes later I turn on CNN and there's another doctor from Palestine being interviewed saying almost verbatim <laughs> the same points, point by point. So, uh, you know, there's some kind of, you almost think the whole thing's just a constant philosophy, a constant mindset. Um, you know, it's funny how this is such a small world. As I'm coming into the university today, I come into the, uh, I park in the, in the guest parking lot, and sure enough, the fellow uh, who's at the gate there, Wayne, he asks me, uh, what are you doing on the show today? And I says, well, we're going to be talking about Gaza and the Mideast. And he <laughs> tells me he was a peacekeeper in the Mideast during the late 60s in the early 70s, and he just thought the situation was hopeless. And I said, why? He says, he says, well, the Arab mindset is such that there will never be peace there. They don't want any Israelis there. They don't want any people of a Jewish persuasion in that area at all. And that's just the way it is, and it's never going to change. And that seems to me to be the basic truth and the basic simplicity of the whole situation that everyone wants to ignore, and therefore it becomes very complex, you see. But here's what Dr. Munir al-Qasim was saying about the situation there. You know, he's called it very tra traumatic. He said not only for Muslims and Arabs, but, you know, he says for all peace-loving people. And it's amazing how they're always talking about peace-loving people. And he said that uh, what we're witnessing today, referring to uh, Israel's attacks on Hamas, is nothing short of a genocide, he says. And it is not, as the Prime Minister of Israel said, an attack against Hamas. It's an attack against Palestinians and the Palestinian people. We all know that Gaza is very densely populated if not the most densely populated part of the world. And he says, there are children falling and it is very difficult to dismiss those images we are witnessing on television as something to bring peace to the region because violence does not beget anything but violence. We are very concerned at this violation of international law by Israel under the watchful eye of superpowers and under the watchful eyes of people who are defending the actions and the right of Israel to defend itself. What about the rights of Palestinians to defend themselves, asks Manir. They are the people who have been under the siege for a long, long time. They are the people who do not have medication to take care of the wounded and sick, people who cannot find food to eat, and if we expect these people for the longest time to tolerate this kind of life, we know that this is impossible. We should look at this as something that really needs to be dealt with immediately. We cannot continue to look at it as something that will bring political gain because all analysts are saying that the timing of this genocide is to allow certain parties in Israel to prevail in the upcoming elections, and this is very tragic. In fact, that's the same point that John Stewart just made in his clip. And argues uh, Al-Qasim that uh, we turn human life into something that is to provide political gain. And he says, we're very angry. We are very upset. Our government even is finding it suitable through the Statement of Foreign Affairs Ministers to say that Israel has the right to defend itself. And he says, you know, these rockets are the products of frustrated people who have been deprived of all the elements of livelihood. And if we will, he says, it's a very simple equation. If we will give them what they need, give them what they need to live peacefully, then they will deal with their governments. We say that this, uh, that it's against Hamas. Not Now, this is no way to eliminate Hamas. This will just make people angry, as one of our members of the community here in London has said. You know, 300 people fell in the last days, and he talks about the children born in the 700 children born in the last four days and he got off on all these tangents that you know talking about high birth rate and all this stuff 
Well, just on what I've read thus far, I'm looking at, okay, saying that what Israel is doing is genocide, that's just false, okay? Um, if it was genocide, they wouldn't be targeting it so much. They wouldn't be. They've gone out of their way. They didn't didn't shoot back for till after the ceasefire. Everybody says, "Why are they shooting now?" Well, the ceasefire ended, <laughs> and he calls it a violation of international law. I don't know what international law says. You cannot defend yourself. And listening to all the commentaries of all the major politicians, uh, sure sounded like they kind of supported that principle. Of course, if they don't, then they don't have the right to defend themselves either, do they? And you know. I hear this over and over again. They talk about the Palestinians' right to defend themselves. Well, and about ha having been under siege. You know, that just didn't start from nowhere. And, uh, you know, if they don't have the medication and, and the food and they can't find food to, to eat, then where the heck do they find these homemade rockets to send over <laughs> into Israel? You were told, we're always told that they're homemade rockets. Give me a break. There's no such thing as a homemade rocket, okay? When I get hungry and I run out of food, I can't go in, into the kitchen, take my toaster apart, plug it into a part of my TV set, maybe add a little bit of hydrogen peroxide or something that I've got in, a, got in my <laughs> closet and what, send a rocket over? Uh, come on now. These things are not homemade. There's no such thing as a homemade rocket. What they're saying is that no state is taking responsibility for them, and that's the whole technique, isn't it? You put, uh, you put your, your, your fighters in the midst of civilian populations so you can make you're actually counting on the goodwill and the virtue of your enemy uh, to not attack you and using that goodwill and virtue as your shield against the very person you're trying to kill. It's just an amazing tactic and it has been working for quite a long time. And uh, I don't believe the rockets are the products of frustrated people. I think they're the products of people who are filled with hate. And, you know, that's what's so complex about this. Nobody wants to come out and say, that, you know, there's a lot of people in this world who just hate Jews. Come on. That's what it's about. I said this on CJBK on Monday morning, and everyone agreed with me. And you can hear it, and, there, and there's no other rationale for this kind of activity. Um, there's no reason that people can't live together in a region who have differing religions, differing faiths, differing beliefs. We can do it here. Why can't they do it there? What's the problem? The problem is not all the other things you hear. Um, you know, and, and so... He was asked, you know, uh, Dr. al Qasim was asked by Andy Udman, he says, uh, you know, if I, was, if I were sleeping in my house with two little girls, you know, and something like, and a rocket came over, you know, what, what should I do, you know, what should be done? And, of course, he says, well, why he'd rephrase that, and he said, Put, putting pa Palestinians on the side and calling them humans like yourself, as though that were the issue, you know. And uh, simply because people happen to be in the area. I, I don't know what he's talking about there. But he did start complaining about that rockets were falling on illegal, sediment, illegal settlements that have been planted all around Gaza, which is against the recommendations and resolutions of the United Nations. And he says if they really wanted to have peace, these settlements, as the government of Israel tried to remove them, but the settlers themselves insisted on saying, staying there. So, okay, so the, the government of Israel is actually trying to remove them. They insist on staying there. What are they doing? Well, they're just settling. They're just sitting there. So even if you turned it over to Palestine, so you'd have some Jewish settlements in Palestine, what's the big problem? Are they lobbing rockets at you? Probably not. So what's the problem? You know, we keep forgetting that there's this hatred factor. They don't want them in their land. If you go to Israel, you'll find Arab Israelis, Jewish Israelis, Israelis of all, all people, and in the government, too. So these are things that are not tolerated on the other side. 
And, uh, you know, he, he says that Obama should take a brave stand and look at both the Palestinians and Israelis equally and not only look through the spectacle of somebody who needs to stay in office because of his support of Israel. He says this is very unacceptable. Well, if that's what you see this issue as, I, I think we've gone past that. We could argue about past wars and who lost what to what forever and ever and ever. Germany could still be mad at France for where the b borders are today, because they're not where they were before the last war. And you can go nation by nation all around the world. You can come here to North America. We have our own conflicts that are going to be starting and looking just like the Mideast before we know it. But as you can see, uh, that's certainly not going to be a solution to anything. But uh, to, to complicate the situation, I don't know if you were... Uh, I have some more notes on, on Mr. al Qasim, which I may get to later, but I want to keep up with the tempo of the show right now. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about this, but um, QP, you know, you hear what they were up to, too. And you had, um, what's his name, Sid Ryan. Uh, they wanted to uh, basically say that if there were any... Um, professors working in Canada who held Israeli citizenship, they should be boycotted. Can you imagine that? And uh, basically saying, and, and an interesting thing too is that CUPE is running the strike at York University right now, which has been going on for about three months, and with uh, students fearing losing their whole year. And Sid Ryan, who of course was a, is a head of CUPE, I said was, because it sounds like he, that might be the case, um, you know, they were calling him people <laughs> People in the media. They said, well, he's obvious. He's either oblivious or stupid, ready for the trash can of public opinion, I think was the words uh, used by Stephen LeDrew of CFRB Radio in Toronto. And he found that these protests that they're, ha you know, having around about the whole situation in the Mideast, it's like ha you know, Hatfields and McCoys. What's the point? It's not going to help anything. Everybody just says, who shot first, which is irrelevant at this point. And, um, but, you know, that's just the whole situation there. But union leader Sid Ryan recently got into trouble for his, uh, and they call it Resolution 50, which calling for professors with Israeli citizenship not to be allowed to teach. Now, ironically, this is hilarious, only two years ago, Ryan was also in trouble over calling for a boycott of Israel, which was also called Resolution 50 and put out by QP. So I wonder, you know, I keep hearing QP is embarrassed by what he just recently did and the things he's been saying, but he's been saying these things and doing them for years. And I'll prove it to you, because what you are about to hear right now, before we go to this next break, is a clip from the Michael Corrin Show, dated July 14th, 2006. So we're going back, what, a year and a half? Which was either the first or second day, I don't recall, of the intensive bombing of Lebanon by Israel, which interestingly has gotten back into the picture just as of today, and which was also in response to rockets raining down on Israel. Now on the panel that day were Michael Corrin, QP uh, Sid Ryan, and this is why I have the tape, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, whose voice you will hear later on in the clip, but mostly you'll be hearing Michael Corrin and Sid Ryan, it's just a hoot. And uh, also sitting there was uh, Toronto Sun columnist Claire Hoy, although you won't be hearing his voice today. But to illustrate how parallel the two situations are, uh, Gaza today and Lebanon then, you've got to listen to this, and when we come back, we'll carry on. I don't, I don't in 2004, think, in the year 2000, they negotiated the trading of... I don't think you understand of, the situation. No, Michael, You're thinking it's just one raid with eight soldiers killed and two kidnapped. There have been hundreds of rockets fired for the past I five years that. on the Lebanese yeah. border. Right. Israel has said time and time again, the restraint has been extraordinary. It said to the government, please do something about this. It, there, are, there are links with Syria. I mean, people deny it, but there are contacts with Syria. Mm. Don't do this. Mm. Control these people. Iran is playing a game. 
Iran is a terrorist state. It murders its own people, including a Canadian woman who was a photographer who was beaten to death and mm -hmm. raped. And the world says nothing about that. Iran is now playing well, games. The world has condemned that, Michael. Don't, don't make it's those broad, broad, sweeping statements. It's done hardly anything about it. They, they have condemned. That's been condemned all around and the world. You, and our, and our own and Canadian you, government has you, condemned that. So you and you've boycotted you, you Iran. Make, you make these broad has sweeping... Has boycotted so Iran? That's a silly, you're giving a silly argument well, now. Now you're silly. getting into... Have you boycotted now Iran? Now you want to get into... Is there a boycott of Iran? What does that make, Michael? We're talking about Lebanon and... Let me ask a silly question. You've admitted a woman was raped and you talk murdered. About, you talk about drinking, is there a boycott you, of Iran? You talk about drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm. This is like the, the pro-Israeli lobbying right okay. now. Yeah, this that, is all yeah. they ever talk about yeah, is, yeah, why, aren't we boycotting, have you? why aren't we boycotting Iran? Have you? Because we're not boycotting Iran. The boycott right now is taking place in, inside of uh, the Israel. That's what we're looking at. Okay. So the fact that a Canadian citizen is raped and beaten to death, the fact that there are people filling the prisons because of their political views, that the fact that there is no basic human rights to people okay. who so and, and are... Uh, my, yes, but sure, there's no boycott. And, and there's all sorts of problems in every country in the world. But and, see, and we haven't gone out I'm and trying to be reasonable with you. When people no, say, when people all, say you have a double standard, when people say you have a double standard and you choose the Jewish state to victimize and you ignore other countries, how do you respond to that? There's nobody victimizing Israel here. The ones who are being victimized, Michael, and you talk well, about drinking the Kool-Aid. Take, take a look at what's going on on your TV screens, Michael. It's not the Israelis that are being victimized. It's the, a lot of Palestinians are being, there are being no victimized. Palis the only Palestinians in Lebanon are in refugee camps because the government won't allow them to live in major cities. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, that's really drinking the Kool-Aid. I don't know what to say to that. I'm, I'm telling you what is going on, and apparently, oh, I have yes. an opinion that's contrary to yours. I, I'm either silly no, or drinking Kool-Aid. No, no, you're the one that starts the, the whole allegations around drinking Kool-Aid, Michael. That, 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 that's, that's your argument that you were making a few moments ago. I'm trying to find a middle ground here of saying, look, this is not Gaza, this is Lebanon, a country, a nation state is responding to constant attack and terror. And all I get no, is, no, 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 they're no, overreacting, no, let's, they're let's, murdering innocent no, people. Let's, let us try and... Here's do you want them to here's, do nothing? Here's what you're trying to do. You're trying to find a justification for, for bombing civilian well, the infrastructure. The justification is overwhelming. For, for bombing civilian... Defending the, their people. It's a, it's, a, it's a violation, Michael, of the United Nations and Geneva Convention to bomb civilians and civilian infrastructure. Now, you may shake your head at that, but that's no, a fact of life. If, if it's a horrific though, if it's true. If it's true, that means that the, <laughs> that the United Nations is morally wrong, not that Israel is. I mean, we can't, well, we, can't, we can't be judging. We, we started this conversation with, this is how many people died. Surely head counts are not an indicator of what is moral and and what is immoral behavior? Israel is reason's foothold in the Middle East. And if Israel doesn't have a right to defend itself, freedom, re, uh, reason itself doesn't have a right to defend itself. So I think it's, it's okay then, in your, in your estimation, it's okay then for one soldier to be captured and you go in and kill 85 civilians uh, and bomb the infrastructure, and that's okay? Uh, those who are responsible, either because it's happening in their country and they're doing nothing about it, or because they're the ones doing it themselves, have no uh, moral defense. Okay. They are in the We've wrong. got a break. In the break, we're all going to drink Kool-Aid. <laughs> nice Kool-Aid. Back in a few moments. Well, it's not a break. We're back from the break. That was the break. And uh, by the way, as coincidence would have it, and this is a coincidence, honestly, I didn't plan this, but the last voice you heard there was uh, Paul McKeever, and he's scheduled to appear live this afternoon on the CTS network, which is number 16 on your cable at 2 p.m. on the Christine Williams show. If you uh, tune into that, you can phone in, too. So um, for those of you listening to the show live, you've got a chance to catch that show this afternoon at 2 o'clock. And as it happens, coincidentally, the subject of the whole program, I understand, will be uh, about Gaza. And if I know CTS, they will probably have representatives 
of uh, all sides there. So it might be interesting. I'm looking forward to it myself. But uh, welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM, where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call. I'm Bob Metz, and we'll be with you from now till noon. Now, you know, trying to summarize the whole thing that's going on over in the Mideast, I, I never fail to be surprised by how many people get caught, in, caught up in the minutia and aren't looking at the big picture. They look at the, the last act of violence or the second last act of violence. You can draw the line wherever you want because you can keep going back right into ancient history if you're going to count, count heads and people and bodies and, and, and acts of violence. But you've got to stop it somewhere. I mean, the rest of the world managed to do it somehow. But it's interesting what is actually at play there. And Sometimes we, we don't sit back and look at the big philosophical issue. You know, Ayn Rand contrasted a free society with an unfree society and, and talked about why it's the unfree societies that always end up in wars. And she said, you know, in a free society, you have people who are free to produce, and they've got no incentive to loot. They've got nothing to gain from war and a heck of a lot to lose. And, uh, you know, ideologically, the principle of individual rights doesn't permit a person to seek his livelihood at the point of a gun, even though we do that in this country to some degree, uh, either inside or outside his country. Economically, wars cost money. In a free economy where wealth is privately owned, the costs of war come out of the income of private citizens. There's no overblown public treasury to hide the fact, and a citizen cannot hope to recoup his own financial losses by winning a war. It doesn't work that way. Thus, his own economic interests are on the side of peace. And that's why you'll always find the more capitalistic a country it is, the less it has an inclination to go to war. Now, in a statist country where wealth is publicly owned and the government runs everything, a citizen has no economic interest to protect by preserving the peace. He's only a drop in the common bucket, explains Rand, while war gives him the fallacious hope of larger handouts from his master. Ideologically, he is trained to regard men as sacrificial animals because he is one himself. He can have no concept of why foreigners should not be sacrificed on the same public altar for the benefit of the same state. And that is exactly, in a nutshell, the fundamental forces politically going on in the Mideast. It's all a state-run show. These aren't homemade rockets and individuals complaining and all that stuff. They're, they're funded and run by states, and um, it's, it's a completely different way of running a war. 9-11 showed that. If you're, if you're, if you're hiding behind, uh, you know, not a, a specific geographic area, and, but among the people, that changes the whole nature of how we're going to be fighting wars in the future. But the so-called complexity of the Mideast situation is just, I think, the result of avoiding a very simple truth that, again, I said it before, there's a lot of people in the world who hate Jews, and in, inside that hatred is also a hatred of capitalism and of, of free societies. And I think it's a truth that has existed for centuries, and that's one of the reasons why the Jewish state, which has only been there for less, you know, half, half a century, a little over half a century, is such a modern state, it's the first world-class state, whereas the countries around them are still, we call them that. We say, oh, well, they're third-world status. Why is that? Because somebody's making them be that way? No. It's their own thinking, their own ideas. The way they view the world is what puts them where they are, and they don't like it when somebody else decides, I'm not going to live like that. And it's a thing they can't tolerate. And that, I think that uh, it's, it's just a truth I can't avoid saying. So, you know, and all the non nonsensical side-issue distractions only make sense 
within the larger context. And that's if you if you're if you're avoiding that obvious context and you never understand what's going on over there because it'll look very complex. You'll look at the at the nuts and bolts of it, who hit who and when did they hit him and what caused it. It's hard to believe there are countries in the world where the actual public school system teaches their kids to hate people of other cultures and hate people. That's what's going on over there. And we sit here and we talk about like we should tolerate intolerance. Uh, it just blows me away. Now, you know, every, I hear the argument Hamas was voted in by the people, and I heard Aliyah Chams, London Council of Arab Women, who was holding a, a vigil yesterday. You know, she says, oh, no, it's just like uh, the Democrats supporting the Democratic Party and having the Democratic Party win, she says, you know, and uh, that's all it is with, with Hamas. But, uh, but Hamas has openly declared its intention and has it written in its policy to kill all Jews and eliminate Israel. Come on, you know, they have a written policy on the destruction of Israel, the death and destruction of every single Jew in the state of Israel. Hamas hides behind civilians for propaganda purposes. And, uh, you know, it's just the way they run. Now, another thing you have to consider is, you know, Israel has welcomed all the people who are kicked out of Arab countries, but none of the Arab countries will welcome the Palestinians in their country because they benefit from the whole political problem. And it's it's part of the strategy. And uh, they count on our virtue and on our, our ability to send millions of dollars over there in aid, which I think is a disastrous move. I don't think we should be doing that, but I'm out on that one, I'll tell you that. But, um, you know, if you really believe in having a rally for peace and you really want peace, if peace is your objective, let's be serious here now, peace, well, you know what you got to do with Gaza? Give it back to Israel. Then I guarantee you, you'll have peace. But then you won't have what the Palestinians want, will they? no Jews. And that's the problem. But you will have peace, so it's not about peace. You know, Israel does not parade its injured and wounded for the world to see, and neither should any country. I think it's very undignified. It's uncivilized. Um, Civilization, by the way, is defined by the fact the civilized society is one that bans the use of physical force in, in human relationships, and that's certainly not the case in all those countries around Israel. In a civilized country, force is only uh, morally justified, and we don't say it's good, we say it's justified um, in self-defense, of course. And uh, the big thing, you know, everybody says, uh, don't play the blame game. Nobody's here to blame. There's, there's, there's guilt on each side. And uh, maybe in certain instances, yes, but again, sit, sitting back and looking at the big picture, and sometimes when one is as clear as this one, which is why I can't understand, you know, what... what um, What's his name on his show? John uh, was talking about early John Stewart. Um, why why he can't understand everybody's picking the one side? Because this is pretty pretty bloody clear. This particular case, uh, three thousand rockets. My goodness, give me a break. They should have been bombing them back ages ago. And I want to know where those rockets come from if they don't have food. You know. So uh, basically, I see Palestine Palestine as a failed state from day one. I don't. Uh, I don't see any hope for this uh, in the sense of uh, if we're going to keep doing it by negotiation. And, uh, you know, I heard one person uh, on an open line call say, well, why don't, you know, why don't, why don't we in the West just decide to mind our own business, you know, and, and forget about them over there? And, and the answer to that is because totalitarian governments don't mind their own business. Your business is their business, and that's why they'll be always be coming after you. And I don't think that's going to change in the near future. But... Um, that's all I have to say on that subject for today. I'm sure uh, there will be many developments over the next week or two 
which we'll try and keep updated with you. But uh, I just tired of the situation of uh, we shouldn't judge. Uh, I'm not judging. I'm not. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Arab. I'm not religious. I don't belong to any of these groups. I'm just sitting back looking at this. And to me, right now, I'm sorry. Israel's completely justified in what it's doing, and I'm glad it's doing what it's doing. And I think if the world wants to slow Israel and keep doing, you know, oh, don't defend yourself and negotiate yourself, what, into your own death? That's what's going on here. I don't agree with any of that. I think it has to be settled. When you're dealing with people who understand nothing but force and who cannot be negotiated with because their goals are non-negotiable, the only way you can respond to them is with force. And that's an unfortunate truth and reality of the world. And if you really want peace, then you want to have a, a world in which governments are extraordinarily limited, small. You have capitalist economies, not socialist economies. And there's your world of peace, and that's all it would take. But uh, since we're all busy robbing Peter to pay Paul, I don't think we're going to have a world of peace for a while. Now, one more clip from that Michael Corrin and uh, McKeever and uh, Ryan Israel thing. And then on the other side of this, we'll hear from George Bush. Uh, on the auto bailout and a couple comments on that. We'll be back right after this quick break. Help to negotiate um, when he was trying to talk to the Syrians to put pressure on Hamas. Um, well, the, the Israelis the were, Syrians, just, were just re rebuff him at every moment. Well, he didn't I, really I, want um, the dialogue or the exchange. I don't think place. that's true. I do believe that Syria will fight against Israel to, to the last Palestinian and the last member of Hezbollah. But putting Gaza aside for a moment, this is a very different situation. And if you really think that Hezbollah cares so much about the Palestinians, I think you're misreading them. I, think, I didn't say that at all. I, I just said I, I believe that they, they've opened up a front now that they see, which is, makes it immeasurably di more difficult to find a solution because they're not... You know, they're not Hezbollah in the same frame of mind. Hamas would look, would look weak now if they were to negotiate some sort of Hamas a, has a, has a, uh, a tangible goal. I mean, sometimes vague, but it is to a large extent tangible. It's Palestinian nationalism. Hezbollah is something very different. They've treated other Muslims in the most appalling manner. Christians even worse. Um, they've treated native Lebanese terribly. They're allied with Syrian soldiers who, who came into that country and would rape and, and, and kill and torture. That was, and the Syrians finally were pushed out only after the assassination of a Lebanese leader and the war did right. very little to try and get rid of them. And that occupation was not spoken about very much. Lebanese leaving the country in large numbers an attempt to almost expunge a whole culture, the Christian culture from that country. Uh, I'll say again, I don't think the Lebanese people want Hezbollah there. At the same time, Israel can't just say, well, we understand that, so we won't do anything. And, they, and, and they've closed the airport down. I fully understand the Israeli reaction. I think it's been comparatively moderate. I can assure you that Israelis do not want the deaths of innocent Lebanese people. Um, even out of self-interest, they wouldn't want it. But you can't keep saying, shell Israeli children, kill Israeli children, Israeli civilians don't matter. And if Israel responds, ah, now we have to condemn. It's a double standard. And they've seen it so many times, they don't care anymore what the world says. Nor should they. Because really, Israel's cause is the cause of the whole world, as, as far as I'm concerned. If we allow, if we encourage a situation internationally where we're saying, you know what, they've only taken a couple soldiers, just give them a couple out of the prison and they'll give them back. We're just, what we're saying is that appeasement is preferable to justice, that, that compensation is preferable to justice. But you can't have a free world, you can't have a rational world in when, uh, when you have irrational groups pushing uh, a, a free country uh, blackmailing a free, a free country. It, it just, it cannot well, they, they weren't looking for exchanges of one or two for one or two. It, it was a hundred or a thousand. Sure, one, of course. More than a series. It was a huge number. Of <sighs> change of subject. Something else. Lots of other...
If we were to allow the free market to take its course now, it would almost certainly lead to disorderly bankruptcy and liquidation for the automakers. Under ordinary economic circumstances, I would say this is the price that failed companies must pay. And I would not favor intervening to prevent the automakers from going out of business. But these are not ordinary circumstances. In the midst of a financial crisis and a recession, allowing the U.S. auto industry to collapse is not a responsible course of action. If a company fails to come up with a viable plan by March 31st, it will be required to repay its federal loans. The automakers and unions must understand what is at stake and make hard decisions necessary to reform. These conditions send a clear message to everyone involved in the future of American automakers. The time to make hard decisions to become viable is now, or the only option will be bankruptcy. And if you believe that one, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. You know, oh, we're, we're bailing you out to avoid a disorderly bankruptcy, but if you're not viable by March 31st, then we're going to let you go into a disorderly bankruptcy. <laughs> what an argument. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you, you can see what's happening there when someone's totally trying to put out a statement that's contrary to their own beliefs and their own policy or their own philosophy, basically. You know, are we spending our way into prosperity or are we going to be spending our way into poverty? I think the more I look at this, it seems to be the latter. I had on my book for or on my shelf for many years a book, uh, an economics book by a fellow named Faustino Balve, who is described as one of those rare scholars who instinctively avoid the pitfalls of specialization and who, as a consequence, spoke not for any narrow nationalistic culture but for the spirit of Western civilization as a whole. He was born in Barcelona, 1887, trained as a lawyer, took his doctorate in Madrid, uh, studied in Berlin, London, and it was in England where uh, he had his juristic background. He first specialized in the study of economics. He was in his teens when civil war broke out in Spain and found himself between a rock and a hard place since, quote, there was no place for this true liberal when the struggle degenerated into a power contest between fascism and communism. So he left Spain, moved first to France, and then eventually ended up, of all places, in his adoptive home of Mexico, where he acquired his citizenship in 1943 and lived until his death in 58. And while in Mexico, he uh, took over two professorial chairs of law and economics in Mexico City. His book, Essentials of Economics, A Brief Survey of Principles and Policies, certainly lives up to its name. And you can still get this. It's put out by the Foundation for Economic Education. And the whole book's only 99 pages. It is brief, it's clear, it's concise, and conveys in four or five pages more economic understanding than many economics texts, which take hundreds of pages never to arrive at any clear understanding. And trust me, I've studied them. Um, so... You know, the great thing about his stuff, too, is, uh, you know, like many books, the first chapter is about what's economics all about. And that's not unusual, but it's the last chapter of his book that's very interesting, and it's called What Economics is Not About. And I'll certainly be talking about that in the future. But for the moment, I want to focus on what Balve had to say about the very conditions, economic situation that face us in today's so-called crisis, both in terms of its causes and a solution. And in stark contrast to the Keynesian philosophy that seems to be in vogue with our various governments, 
which makes uh, you know easy easy money a, an economic objective. Balve makes it clear that quote in a word, crises arise not from a lack, but from an excess of money. He said that uh, since the time of Sismondi, which is way back in 1773, crises have been described as periodic infirmities in which a free econo- to which a free economy is subject. You know, cyclical crisis, you hear that all the time. And as a result of the anarchy of production. Karl Marx held both views at the same time, although it's evident they're mutually contradictory since an economy in which there are periodic phenomena cannot that can be calculated and predicted can hardly be characterized as anarchic. That's an interesting point. But generally, however, says Balve, when one speaks of a crisis, what is meant is a crisis due to a falling off of sales, a failure of the market to absorb the products that are brought to it, which you see in the car industry today. It is not surprising, therefore, that economists of an earlier age explain this kind of crisis by attributing it to a lack of money. In general, commodities are distributed in accordance with the supply of money available. If it's meager, commodity prices will be low, but no disturbance is produced in the economy. Commodities may be worth less, but the money will be worth more, and consequently everything that is brought to the market will be absorbed. And that is the way both Adam Smith and John Baptiste Say explain the matter, and he says no one's succeeded in refuting them yet. And um, he says another variant of the doctrine is that of overproduction. It's been said the crisis occurs when market producers produce beyond the needs of the consumers so that there's a glut on the market, which there's another word we hear with cars. Uh, even though the consumers have the money to buy the commodities offered for sale, they simply don't want them. Now, at this point, Balve discusses a handful of popular notions about what causes crises, like the one we're now witnessing, and pretty much dismisses all of them. And like so many of the economists that I've featured on past broadcasts of this show, Balve points his finger directly at the main culprit, and that is credit expansion. And he says that takes place, pure and simple, when in an effort to force an increase in the country's production beyond the normal development of its economic life, a policy is adopted, by the government of course, and that's him saying of course, of accelerating production, or as W.A. Lewis called it, mobilizing resources. It sounds like Flaherty talking. This policy consists simply in making money available, generally in the form of bank credit at low interest rates, to those who wish to establish or expand branches of production that are considered advantageous to the country. Now, could you possibly find a better generic description of what certain sectors of our economy are experiencing today? So, Balde explains, you know, the government injects more money into the economy, and then what happens? You get a boom. Factories or farmhouses are built, machineries manufactured, imported and set up. A bureaucratic personnel is organized. Uh, Cars are, anyone? All this means money passing through many hands and reaching the market to buy consumers' goods that have not increased to the same extent. The result is, accordance with the law of supply and demand, that in spite of the price ceilings imposed by government, prices rise. And with an increase in price, wages have to be raised and there's an illusion of prosperity. But a time comes when the money available for the expansion of production is used up and the industries thus created have to live on their own resources and find that very few can do so. In fact, that's part of the process we're seeing now. A lot of the businesses going out of business today were the ones that were propped up 5, 10, 15, even 20 years ago. And that's the problem with propping businesses up. When they think they've always got that uh, safety net there, then they don't act as safe as they should with their money and ours. And he says some industries prove to have been poor investments and go out of business entirely. I notice he didn't mention that some might be um, pyramid schemes. 
And then, of course, others produce goods for which there's no demand, like machinery for still other industries that have not expanded, or consumers' goods that are priced too high to compete. A crisis results. Prices rise, the value of monetary unit depreciates, production, useful and necessary to the country, has not increased, because that's who they're taxing. Sales fall off, workers lose their jobs, unemployment is on the rise, and a painful period of readjustment begins again. The policy of credit expansion, instead of increasing the wealth of the country, has dissipated a good part of it. And that's pretty well the way it goes, doesn't it? There you have it. And that's just uh, half of the, the equation. He also talked about um, the whole unemployment issue. And by the way, you know, unemployment as a mass phenomenon did not exist before 1914. No such thing. And the reasons were, and we'll get into that on, on, on a future show, maybe the next one. Um, well, I'll let, I'll let him explain that later because I think we're running out of time now. I think we'll leave it there for this week, and we'll be back again next week when we hope that you will join us again on our journey in the right direction. Until then, hey... Be right, act right, stay right, do right, and think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Let me tell you about my family since they're not here tonight. <laughs> yeah, my mother used to always tell me, wear clean underwear, you never know, you might get hit by a bus, right? As in, Ma, if I see a bus going at me, the first thing to do is crap in my pants anyway. <laughs>